economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs of Reedy Melody Baker. I'm singing down the dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Matt Duss. Matt is the foreign policy advisor of Senator Bernie Sanders and one of the most prominent protagonists of a progressive U.S. foreign policy. Before joining the Sanders team, he was president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace and a senior policy analyst at the Center for American Progress. He also played in a band and has expressed some dubious music choices on Twitter, but we will not discuss these in more detail today. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, and and I think we should discuss that. I want to hear about these allegedly dubious musical opinions, because I know we do share some musical opinions, as we discovered very recently. (laughs) That's true. So let's start with my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported? Uh, The first sports team, I mean... The easy answer would probably be the New York Yankees growing up, you know, outside New York City up in Rockland County. But in reality, the first real sports team I was a fan of was probably the Nyack College Fighting Parsons. Now, Nyack College was a small Christian college in in Nyack where I grew up. It's actually the place where my parents met and then settled after college. But their sports team was called the Fighting Parsons, which is like the fighting preachers. (laughs) But anyway, they were still very engaged in that college community. And so we'd go to games because my father had been a basketball player on that team. So we'd go up to the gym and watch the game. So that was my first team, really. Well, that's better than the Yankees. So, Saka, what is your favorite political song? Favorite political song? Again, I could reel off a few here. But if I have to pick one, I'm to go with John Coltrane's Alabama, which was written, actually, this was the anniversary just yesterday, September 15th, 1963, was the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, that killed four young girls and wounded many others by white supremacist terrorists. And uh, John Coltrane uh, recorded this song with his quartet, the legendary quartet with Elvin Jones on drums a couple months after that, November 1963. But it's just, you know, there's so much emotion bound up Mm -hmm. in this one song. That Yeah, no, I have to go with that as my the number one. And finally, what is your favorite political book? I'm going to cheat and name two. One is The Master and the Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov, written as a kind of critique of, you know, Stalinist Russia, um, mm-hmm. Soviet society, just exposing the hypocrisy and the cowardice as he saw it. And interesting, you know, I think a lot of what it says about courage and cowardice and temptation and corruption is quite relevant to Washington today. <laughs> I think we could use an updater or at least a, an American version of that novel, which I don't think we have seen yet. But another I'm going to mention here, and I just read this. It's one of these classic novels that I had yet to read, and I finally got around to it just this past month, is All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren, mm-hmm. which is just you know, it's one of those books that you hear about. It's one of the great American novels. And it just, it absolutely is. I mean, the writing in that is just absolutely extraordinary. It's one of those things that every page, just the technique and the craft of his prose and the imagery is just amazing. So, Right. So let's start with the big issues of the last week, particularly the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the return of the Taliban regime. Mm-hmm. Was Biden right to withdraw? And what should U.S. policy on Afghanistan be like going forward? 
Well, I think, you know, as my boss said, and I, and I do want to clarify here, you know, the views I'm expressing here are my views. I'm not yep. speaking for Senator Sanders or, or the Sanders office, although obviously a lot of what I say will echo things my boss has said. But no, I mean, as Senator Sanders has said and written, he's strongly supportive of the decision to withdraw. I think it was the right decision. I think it's a courageous decision, knowing that it would face a lot of criticism, no matter how it was managed. Mm -hmm. I think there are some criticisms that are fair with regard to how it was managed in the weeks leading up to that evacuation. You know, specifically, I think how the slow pace of processing visas and stuff like that but the bottom line is this was the right decision. And then I think President Biden was right to go forward with it. And I think you see that, you know, largely the American people continue to agree. There's been some drop in support for the decision, of, you know, because of the way it was managed. But again, my own view is that if there are ways this could have been done better, I think that the impact would have been marginal because losing a war is ugly. And I think having, you know, the courage again, and I think it is courage to do this, what, you know, three previous presidents could not do is very, very important. But how should the U.S. engage with the Taliban regime? First, we should stay engaged with them. First of all, we should make clear what kind of policies we would like to see with the treatment of women, the issues of human rights. I know this Taliban obviously are not going to satisfy what a lot of Americans would like to see in terms of their government. But frankly, neither did the previous Afghan government, the one that we created. We shouldn't pretend that the Taliban have mass support in the country. But the bottom line is for many communities in Afghanistan, the Taliban were a less worse option than the government that the United States has created. And I think that should lead to some very, very serious introspection in Washington and the foreign policy community, though, unfortunately, I doubt that will happen. Right. But no, with regard to the engagement, yeah, I think our focus should, as always, be on the Afghan people themselves. What policies are we going to enable us to continue to help deliver aid and support to the communities that need it? Now, you already mentioned the foreign policy establishment. In the weeks after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, two things stood out to me. First, the almost complete consensus of the U.S. foreign policy punditry which bipartisanly rejected the withdrawal. And the second was how out of touch this consensus was with U.S. public opinion. You have indicated that you kind of saw the same. Do you see that as a hindrance or an opportunity for shifting U.S. foreign policy in a more progressive direction? I mean, mm. this kind of entrenched foreign policy punditry. Right. right. No, I, exactly. I think we did see just this massive, and it was no by means monolithic, but it was fairly overwhelming. I think, you know, the high priests of American foreign policy, you know, the Council on Foreign Relations, you know, other think tanks, you know, the kind of interventionist priesthood was out in force for a few reasons. One is, you know, a lot of people ideologically just believe in kind of American military power and its ability to create magical outcomes, despite the overwhelming evidence that it cannot. But it's also, and I made this point a number of times in different places, I mean, this was also kind of an effort of our foreign policy community to absolve itself of nearly 20 years of failure and try to dump this all in President Biden's lap. Um, to avoid exactly that introspection that I was talking about earlier. Because if we're going to understand what happened over the past few weeks and months, we need to understand what happened over the past 20 years. And frankly, I see little evidence that this town and, and this foreign policy community that works here is really kind of capable of really that examination. But frankly, we need it. Because as you said, I mean, the response largely showed how disconnected the foreign policy conversation is from the opinions of many Americans. And this is something we've seen for a long time. And frankly, this was one of the big takeaways of 
Donald Trump's candidacy and then his presidency. Right. And again, I'm, I'm very hesitant to kind of identify any upsides to uh, Donald Trump's presidency. But I do think it did show exactly that, how disconnected the kind of policy discourse, not just in foreign policy, but across a range of policy issues, the kind of conventional wisdom and the sort of unassailable, so-called unassailable consensus on a lot of these questions is in fact quite assailable and frankly, very, very shallow. The support for these ideas is actually very shallow, if, if not non-existent, amongst large segments of the American population. Both you and your boss have written and spoken about a progressive foreign policy for the U.S. What is that really about? What is the ideological core? What is the underlying idea of a progressive foreign policy? First, it's helpful to kind of step back and think about what is foreign policy for? I mean, what is the function of, of any country's foreign policy? And I think in its simplest terms, you know, American foreign policy should look to advance the security and the prosperity of the American people. Those are kind of the core guides for a successful foreign policy and what its goals should be. But I think what progressives bring to this conversation of is the idea of our obligations are first and foremost to the American people, but also we have obligations beyond that. We have a commitment to solidarity with communities around the world, and we need to be especially mindful of the negative impacts that our foreign policy has on some of these less privileged communities, poorer communities, not only abroad, but in our own country. I think this is also one of the things that we've seen, you know, that's becoming much, much more broadly understood is the impact of 20 years of this global war on terror, not only on communities around the world, but here in our own country, the militarization of our police, of just to name one, to say nothing of the deprivation of when we're spending, you know, trillions of dollars, you know, invading and occupying other countries while our own communities lose jobs, don't have health care, are just infected with you know, drug addiction, you know, run down the list. I think Spencer Ackerman has an excellent book, which is getting a lot of coverage, which is great. It's called Reign of Terror. I highly recommend it, which is really, I think, the most fulsome examination of this idea. But going back to a progressive foreign policy, yeah, I would say just that idea of solidarity. And so when we're looking to advance our security and prosperity, making sure that at the very least, that does not come at the expense or undermine the security and prosperity of others. Now, you have been very outspoken on the issue of the Middle East, but particularly Israel, as well as U.S.-Israeli relations. What do you think the U.S. position on Israel should be? Well, I think the position should, first of all, be to end the occupation and to push for a situation where Israelis and Palestinians, Jews and Palestinians, Arabs, Muslims in the land of Israel-Palestine live as equals. I think, you know, the position of the United States and you know, the broader international community has been to push for a two-state solution, a Palestinian state alongside the state of Israel. I think that is clearly slipping away. And frankly, the goal of Israeli policy over decades has been to prevent that outcome. I think we need to be very, very frank about that. The goal of the settlement project is to prevent the emergence of a viable Palestinian state. And I think the failure of American leaders to point that out honestly and frankly, let alone support any consequences for those policies, has in fact contributed to the situation we're in now. So at the very least, I think U.S. policy should create negative consequences for continued settlement building. These settlements, as the U.N. has stated repeatedly, most recently in 2016, these are a violation of international humanitarian law. And I think United States policy should reflect that. So does that mean that you no longer believe in a two-state solution? And if so, what type of one-state solution yeah. would that be? I would say, in my view, the two-state solution is still the most 
you know, in terms of what public opinion on both sides want, I think public opinion shows that Israelis certainly favor that. Palestinians still favor that. I think as a practical matter, it becomes much harder the more settlers you have moving into the West Bank, the more entrenched those communities become kind of enmeshed within Palestinian communities. And again, that's the goal of creating the settlements. It's hard for me to see how we get from here to a one state solution. I know that Palestinian leaders have offered various versions of this over the years, and it's important to acknowledge that. I think Peter Beinert is an American writer that many probably know who, who published a piece just last year that made, I think, a very, very articulate case for a one-state solution. But I'll just say that I support policy that allows people to live with equality and dignity, whether that's one state or two states, You know, whatever the sides can negotiate. But ending the occupation and ending the military domination of one people over another, which is what we have right now, should be a priority. When I came to the U.S. in 2008, critique of Israel was still largely absent from mainstream U.S. media, like the New York Times. Nowadays, the debate is much more open, and the bipartisan consensus on Israel is still largely intact in Congress. But at the mass level, there's growing divergence between Democrats and Republicans. Why do you think this is happening? And what could that potentially mean for a democratic policy on Israel in the not distant future, but let's say in the coming five to 10 years? Yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, the, this debate has shifted significantly and it is finally being felt in Congress. I think, you know, if you look at some of the statements and criticisms that were made of the most recent war on Gaza, coming from the Congress. In fact, for the first time, I think you saw the president having to deal with criticism from his left, putting pressure on him to be more aggressive in ending the conflict and putting pressure on Israel from a number of really important progressive voices in the Congress, including my boss, including you know people like the squad, but not just the squad. Uh, you had critical statements coming from even Senator Bob Menendez, who's a fairly conservative supporter of Israel. But I think the reason for this is, I mean, there are a number of reasons, but I think, first of all, we have to give an enormous amount of credit to the Palestinian activist community in Palestine and in the United States and more broadly. They've done a lot of work under intense pressure to kind of lift up of the idea of Palestinian rights and to confront people with the reality that they have been living under for many decades. And I think they've done important work in linking up with other activist communities. I think they've done a very important job in putting the Palestinian rights issue as a kind of one part of the broader progressive agenda in a very effective way, making it part of the kind of intersectional approach to human rights and dignity and equality that I think progressives in the United States and elsewhere all share. And I think you're seeing that finally after years of hard work and organizing that is being reflected amongst a number of elected leaders. Right. Now, as a European in the U.S., and someone who works on European politics. I've noticed over the last decades that Europe features less and less in the foreign policy discussion in the US. While, of course, Trump was the most blunt about it, in a sense, he expressed a sentiment that has been present even under Obama and now under Biden. I mean, just yesterday, a new alliance in the Pacific of the US, Australia and the UK was announced, which left out the French, among others, which was very sensitive. Where do you see the importance of transatlantic relations? Where do you see the importance of NATO and of the EU in building a U.S. progressive foreign yeah. policy? I hear what you're saying. Part of what Trump brought, again, was to kind of challenge the underlying assumptions about 
the U.S.-Europe relationship, because in my view, I mean, the value of the transatlantic relationship, the U.S.-Europe relationship as kind of foundational to the United States security concept is just one of those unquestioned assumptions in Washington. I mean, it's seen as so just absolutely true that foreign policy professionals haven't felt the need to really explain it or defend it over many years. And thus, when someone like Trump comes along you know, and questions the value of it, how much are we paying? Are we getting ripped off? I mean, I think there are good answers to those criticisms, but they actually speak to questions that a lot of Americans have about the relationship that Washington simply has not been paying heed to. So the fact that we're having a discussion now, and I do think we are, this discussion has been reopened. What is the value of NATO? Should we continue to expand NATO? What is the value of the U.S.-Europe relationship? I think there is value to those things. I mean, I think security alliances are important. But the question is, how much are we paying versus how much is others paying versus what do we get? You know, do these alliances and not just NATO, but I think this is a a question that should be asked of all security alliances. Does it lead to less risky behavior on the part of the partners in these alliances or more risky behavior? I mean, our goal should be for it to lead to the former, to more stability rather than less. But I think these are very fair and important questions for us to be asking right now, given the way that the kind of relative share of power across the globe is changing. Yeah, and one of the things that is changing is, of course, the focus of the U.S. from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And there is a rare new bipartisan consensus, namely that China is the big enemy. What is your position? What is the position from a progressive foreign policy? How do you deal Mm -hmm. with China? A, is it a threat or is it a competitor? Do you deal with it primarily economically, politically, militarily? Yeah, well, I think here I would point to a piece that Senator Sanders wrote in Foreign Affairs a few months ago, pushing back on the kind of fast forming, you know, US-China Cold War consensus in Washington, exactly what you just said. But still, I think as the piece shows, I mean, China is all those things. It's a threat in some respects. It's a competitor in other respects. There are areas where we should and we must seek to work with China on climate, on pandemics, on a range of other things. It may work, it may not work, but I, you know, it's important that we try. It's also important that we recognize those areas where China does represent a threat to our security and to our values. Things like Xinjiang, the treatment of the Uyghurs, which is atrocious. I mean, we should look for ways to work with our international partners and international institutions like the UN to put pressure on China on those policies. But I think we can do both of those things at the same time. I think where Senator Sanders is concerned, as the piece kind of laid out, I think as we've seen, and here I would refer back to Spencer Ackerman's book, which I just mentioned, you know, one of the things that he really writes about very well in the book, and I've written about this at other times as well, is the way that, you know, the kind of anti-Muslim rhetoric, the global war on terror rhetoric kind of corroded our own politics, you know, and gave rise to a movement like Trump's and actually, you know, a lot of what Trump used to kind of build his political profile, like birtherism, like these attacks on Obama, which were just kind of exploiting anti-Muslim sentiment to mobilize kind of conservative base. I mean, we can see that already starting with China. You know, there's a reason why someone like Steve Bannon identified China as the new threat years ago. So I think especially for progressives, but more broadly, you have to be careful about avoiding this fantasy that we are going to build unity and consensus around the idea of a new foreign threat. 
that never works out well for progressive values. It always undermines those values. Right. And so, yes, we can have a conversation about the challenges and threats that China does and does not actually pose without buying into this kind of conception of China is, you know, this existential threat to the well-being of American families that we have to mobilize and unify against. Now, one of the things that is always mentioned, but barely ever fundamentally discussed, let alone prioritized, is climate change. Climate change still features rhetorically high, but in terms of policy content, pretty low in foreign policy discussions. Where do you see the role of climate change and how does this issue affect foreign policy in general? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, climate change is something that Senator Sanders has raised for a long time. He was, you know, one of the very first to kind of put this as like the top national security issue facing our country when he brought that up and put it in those terms during the 2016 election. Some people kind of laughed at that, but no one is laughing at that anymore. I think there's a much broader consensus around climate change being a problem in and of itself, but also a problem that is going to exacerbate other problems like immigration as, as people migrate and leave areas that are no longer habitable because of climate and seek to make a life for themselves elsewhere and the tensions that that can give rise to and the kind of backlash and movements that that can feed. We need to address that. So it's absolutely, I think, a major issue. And frankly, I think the Biden administration understands that it's extremely important and commendable that one of their first choices in filling out their administration was to name former Secretary of State John Kerry as climate envoy. Creating a cabinet level envoy for the climate was a really important sign that the United States government is taking this much more seriously. So what are some of the most important allies internationally? Could be states, could be international non-governmental organizations mm -hmm. that you see to help advance this policy? Yeah, I mean, first I would say, I mean, the UN plays a really important role here. And I think the UN Secretary General has repeatedly highlighted the climate change problem just recently, I think made just a statement as recently as today or yesterday about how the world needs to get together and, you know, and get moving on some of these challenges with regard to emissions, lowering emissions uh, very quickly. I think this is, again, where the US-EU relationship is going to be very, very important as some of the biggest emitters and in transforming our industrial and manufacturing in a much more green, climate-friendly way. And obviously, China has a major role to play here. As a country that is in many ways still developing, do what we can to work with China to point that development in a climate-friendly direction. And that's, that's an enormous challenge, but it's something we have to do. Now, on the one hand, Biden came to power through a campaign, of course, anti-Trump which he also has taken kind of globally as in an opposition to, for the sake of argument, authoritarian populists, which are people like Putin. We can think Bolsonaro. At the same time, Biden is always including someone like Modi in his alliance mm -hmm. of the good versus the alliance of right. the evil. How fundamental is the threat of authoritarian populism and how central should it be in U.S. foreign policy? Well, I think it's a very, very large threat not just internationally, but nationally within our own country. And again, this is a point that Senator Sanders made, and I think was really important in the piece he wrote on China, is that the primary battlefield between democracy and authoritarianism is within states, not between them. I mean, there's definitely an international aspect to it, but these are battles that are taking place within states and particularly within democracies like our own, like we saw, like we continue to see with the Trump movement, like we see in democracy like India. 
you know, Modi leads a right-leaning ultra-nationalist kind of movement in his own country that I think clearly is threatening India's democracy. Um, you mentioned Bolsonaro. There were others like Orban. I think Netanyahu in Israel would represent this trend. Yeah. And, you know, the Biden administration, fortunately, I think gets this in some important ways. Their approach of foreign policy for a middle class, building back better. You know, if you look at what's been written, particularly by someone like Jake Sullivan, the international security advisor, he's written and said a number of things, you know, importantly, and this goes back to what I said about how one of the lessons of the Trump era is how detached the foreign policy conversation had become from the views of so many Americans. And I think acknowledging that reality, showing that, first of all, the American government can deliver, democracy can deliver for American families, for American workers, and that the way that foreign policy is being developed and conducted and implemented is delivering, is helping deliver for those communities, has a huge part to play in strengthening and defending democracy against some of these authoritarian challenges. So finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about U.S. foreign policy? <sighs> You know, I think people, and again, this is, I think you can see this on the both the right and the left, you know, seeing as a kind of monolithic, very well planned and executed for the benefit of a specific elite. Now, that is true. I think there are our, our politics continue to be dominated by elites, whether we're talking about the defense industry, whether we're talking about kind of other lobbies in Washington, you know, in addition to just kind of an ideological predisposition toward American power. But you know, I think of this conversation that I had with some students in Gaza back in, I think it was 2015. I was having lunch with a small group of high school students. And this one young woman spoke up and said, well, a lot of us believe that the United States created ISIS as a way to keep Arab societies down and to keep us destabilized. And my immediate response to that was, well, I'm flattered that you think the United States is that competent to actually plan and execute <laughs> something like this, because, you know, I look back at the previous decade and a half and more of U.S. policy in the Middle East, and it seems very clear that we have very little idea what we're actually trying to do. And I think, you know, the idea that there is just so much intention and well-planned execution in foreign policy is a kind of comforting, you know, conspiracy theories are actually kind of optimistic because they suggest that people can get together and plan things and, and pull them off when the truth is there's a lot more chaos going on here than people might want to believe. But all of this is just to say, I think it is possible to get engaged and to change things. And that's kind of the message I just want to push to people. That's been the message of my boss as well. It's like, get involved in this movement. We can change politics. We can change policy. And that's true in domestic policy and in foreign policy as well. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Matt. Thank you. It was my pleasure. If you want to know more about Matt Duss, do follow him on Twitter at, at Matt Duss. I highly recommend it. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonuts with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall. I want to thank Jack Fernandez for helping me with the editing. And I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and really melody maker. I'm seeing down the dunker. Playing with his beard. No wonder that that's Capitale turned out a little weird.